Life is complex. Join us for the simple gifts of wisdom, love, and delight in the written word. Thomas Paine's Common Sense Of the Presentability of America with some miscellaneous reflections. Part 1. I have never met with a man, either in England or America, who hath not confessed his opinion that a separation between the countries would take place one time or other. And there is no instance in which we have shown less judgment than in endeavoring to describe what we call the ripeness or fitness of the continent for independence. As all men allow the measure, and vary only in their opinion of the time, let us, in order to remove mistakes, take a general survey of things, and endeavor, if possible, to find out the very time. But we need not go far. The inquiry ceases at once, for the time hath found us. The general concurrence, the glorious union of all things, prove the fact. It is not in numbers, but in unity, that our great strength lies. Yet our present numbers are sufficient to repel the force of all the world. The continent hath, at this time, the largest body of armed and disciplined men of any power under heaven, and is just arrived at that pitch of strength in which no single colony is able to support itself, and the whole, when united, can accomplish the matter, and either more or less than this, might be fatal in its effects. Our land force is already sufficient, and as to naval affairs, we cannot be insensible that Britain would never suffer an American man-of-war to be built, while the continent remained in her hands. Wherefore, we should be no forwarder an hundred years hence in that branch than we are now. But the truth is, we should be less so, because the timber of the country is every day diminishing, and that which will remain at last will be far off and difficult to procure. Were the continent crowded with inhabitants, her sufferings under the present circumstances would be intolerable. The more seaport towns we had, the more should we have both to defend and to lose. Our present numbers are so happily proportioned to our wants that no man need be idle. The diminution of trade affords an army, and the necessities of an army create a new trade. Debts we have none, and whatever we may contract on this account will serve as a glorious memento of our virtue. Can we but leave posterity with a settled form of government, an independent constitution of its own, the purchase at any price will be cheap. But to expend millions for the sake of getting a few vile acts repealed, and routing the present ministry only, is unworthy the charge, and is using posterity with the utmost cruelty, because it is leaving them the great work to do, and a debt upon their backs, from which they derive no advantage. Such a thought is unworthy a man of honor, and is the true characteristic of a narrow heart and a peddling politician. The debt we may contract doth not deserve our regard if the work be but accomplished. No nation ought to be without a debt. A national debt is a national bond, and when it bears no interest, is in no case a grievance. Britain is oppressed with a debt of upwards of 140 millions sterling, for which she pays upwards of 4 millions interest. And as a compensation for her debt, she has a large navy. America is without a debt, and without a navy. Yet for the twentieth part of the English national debt could have a navy as large again. The navy of England is not worth, at this time, more than three millions and a half sterling. 
The first and second editions of this pamphlet were published without the following calculations, which are now given as a proof that the above estimation of the Navy is just. See Eric's Naval History Intro, page 56. The charge of building a ship of each rate and furnishing her with masts, yards, sails, and rigging, together with a proportion of eight months' boatswains and carpenters' sea stores, as calculated by Mr. Burchett, Secretary to the Navy. For a ship of a hundred guns, 35,553 pounds sterling. For a ship of 90 guns, 29,886 pounds sterling. For a ship of 80 guns, 23,638 pounds sterling. For a ship of 70 guns, 17,785 pounds sterling. For a ship of 60 guns, 14,197 pounds sterling. For a ship of 50 guns, 10,606 pounds sterling. For a ship of 40 guns, 7,558 pounds sterling. For a ship of 30 guns, 5,846 pounds sterling. For a ship of 20 guns, 3,170 pounds sterling. And from hence it is easy to sum up the value, or cost, rather, of the whole British Navy, which, in the year 1757, when it was at its greatest glory, consisted of the following ships and guns. Six 100-gun ships, for a total of 213,318 pounds sterling, 12 90-gun ships, for a total of 358,632 pounds sterling, 12 80-gun ships, for a total of 283,656 pounds sterling, 43 70-gun ships, for a total of 764,755 pounds sterling, 35 60-gun ships, for a total of 496,895 pounds sterling, 40 50-gun ships, for a total of 424,240 pounds sterling, 45 40-gun ships, for a total of 340,110 pounds sterling, 58 20-gun ships, for a total of 215,180 pounds sterling, and 85 sloops, bombs, and fire ships, one with another, at 2,000 pounds sterling each, for a total of 170,000 pounds sterling. Total cost, 3,266,786 pounds sterling, with remains for guns of 233,214 pounds sterling, for a total cost of the British Navy of 3,500,000 pounds sterling. No country on the globe is so happily situated or so internally capable of raising a fleet as America. Tar, timber, iron, and cordage are her natural produce. We need go abroad for nothing. Whereas the Dutch, who make large profits by hiring out their ships of war to the Spaniards and Portuguese, are obliged to import most of the materials they use. We ought to view the building a fleet as an article of commerce, it being the natural manufactory of this country. It is the best money we can lay out. A navy, when finished, is worth more than it cost, and is that nice point in national policy in which commerce and protection are united. Let us build. If we want them or not, we can sell, and by that means replace our paper currency with ready gold and silver. In point of manning a fleet, people in general run into great errors. It is not necessary that one-fourth part should be sailors. The terrible privateer, Captain Death, 
stood the hottest engagement of any ship last war, yet had not twenty sailors on board, though her complement of men was upwards of two hundred. A few able and social sailors will soon instruct a sufficient number of active landmen in the common work of a ship. Wherefore, we can never be more capable to begin on maritime matters than now, while our timber is standing, our fisheries blocked up, and our sailors and shipwrights out of employ. Men of war of seventy and eighty guns were built forty years ago in New England, and why not the same now? Shipbuilding is America's greatest pride, and in which she will in time excel the whole world. The great empires of the East are mostly inland, and, consequently, excluded from the possibility of rivaling her. Africa is in a state of barbarism, and no power in Europe hath either such an extent of coast or such an internal supply of materials. Where nature hath given the one, she hath withheld the other. To America only hath she been liberal of both. The vast empire of Russia is almost shut out from the sea. Wherefore, her boundless forests, her tar, iron, and cordage, are only articles of commerce. In point of safety, ought we to be without a fleet? We are not the little people now, which we were sixty years ago. At that time we might have trusted our property in the streets, or fields rather, and slept securely without locks or bolts to our doors or windows. The case now is altered, and our methods of defense ought to improve with our increase of property. A common pirate, twelve months ago, might have come up the Delaware and laid the city of Philadelphia under instant contribution, for what sum he pleased, and the same might have happened to other places. Nay, any daring fellow, in a brig of fourteen or sixteen guns, might have robbed the whole continent, and carried off half a million of money. These are circumstances which demand our attention, and point out the necessity of naval protection. Some, perhaps, will say that after we have made it up with Britain, she will protect us. Can we be so unwise as to mean that she shall keep a navy in our harbors for that purpose? Common sense will tell us that the power which hath endeavored to subdue us is, of all others, the most improper to defend us. Conquest may be effected under the pretense of friendship, and ourselves, after a long and brave resistance, be at last cheated into slavery. And if her ships are not to be admitted into our harbors, I would ask, how is she to protect us? A navy three or four thousand miles off can be of little use, and on sudden emergencies, none at all. Wherefore, if we must hereafter protect ourselves, why not do it for ourselves? Why do it for another? The English list of ships of war is long and formidable, but not a tenth part of them are at any one time fit for service, numbers of them not in being. Yet their names are pompously continued in the list, if only a plank be left of the ship, and not a fifth part of such as are fit for service can be spared on any one station at one time. The East and West Indies, Mediterranean, Africa, and other parts over which Britain extends her claim make large demands upon her navy. From a mixture of prejudice and inattention, we have contracted a false notion respecting the navy of England, and have talked as if we should have the whole of it to encounter at once, and for that reason supposed that we must have one as large, which, not being instantly practicable, have been made use of by a set of disguised Tories to discourage our beginning thereon. Nothing can be farther from the truth than this, for if America had only a twentieth part of the naval force of Britain, she would be by far an overmatch for her, because as we neither have nor claim any foreign dominion, 
our whole force would be employed on our own coast, where we should, in the long run, have two to one the advantage of those who had three or four thousand miles to sail over before they could attack us, and the same distance to return in order to refit and recruit. And, although Britain by her fleet hath a check over our trade to Europe, we have as large a one over her trade to the West Indies, which, by laying in the neighborhood of the continent, is entirely at its mercy. Tis the gift to be simple. Tis the gift to be free. Tis the gift to come down where we ought to be. And when we find ourselves in the place just right, t'will be in the valley of love and delight. When true simplicity is gained, to bow and to bend, we will not be ashamed. To turn, turn, will be our delight, till by turning, turning, we come round right. <laughs>